RTE News at One with Brian Dobson. Good afternoon. The headlines this Monday lunchtime. The Garda Commissioner Drew Harris has warned of the dangers people put themselves and others in by using handheld devices while driving. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has accused member states of turning a blind eye to the Geneva Conventions. And farmers have been staging protests against EU policies in cities across Europe, including Brussels, Cork and Madrid. The news in detail now with Brian Jennings. The Garda Commissioner Drew Harris has lamented a trend in driver behaviour that has undergone much progress, making roads safer. The Commissioner welcomed the reduction in the number of drink drivers, but lamented that there had been an almost corresponding increase in the number of people driving while under the influence of drugs. The Commissioner was speaking at the launch of a schools-led road safety campaign in Tullamore this morning. Our Midlands correspondent, Gail Conway. Hundreds of children from Squelvwira and Squelvregia and Tullamore took part in highlighting the serious dangers of using mobiles while driving at their road safety campaign launch. They came up with what they called a simple and easy to understand message for drivers. Phone down, safe driving. Recent World Health Organization data indicates that drivers using a mobile phone are four times more likely to be involved in a collision. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris said distracted driving due to handheld mobile device usage is one of the dangerous behaviours that leads to road traffic collisions. The Commissioner also said that gains made in reducing drink driving had almost been lost and replaced by drivers under the influence of drugs, while speed is also a contributing factor in serious and fatal collisions. Over 19,000 fines were issued last year for people using their mobile phones while driving, while almost one-fifth of drivers reported writing texts or emails very often, according to Road Safety Authority research. Gail Conway, RT News, Tullamore. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has criticised the Security Council for its handling of conflicts in Gaza and the Ukraine. In a speech at the opening of the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, he said nothing justified what he called the collective punishment of the Palestinian people in Gaza. Mr. Guterres said member states were deliberately overlooking the Geneva Conventions and even the United Nations Charter. He cited the Gaza example of where the rules of war were being undermined. Tens of thousands of civilians, including women and children, have been killed in Gaza. Humanitarian aid is still completely insufficient. Rafa is the core of the humanitarian aid operation and UNRWA is the backbone of that effort. An all-out Israeli offensive on the city would not only be terrifying for more than a million Palestinian civilians sheltering there, it would put the final nail in the coffin of our aid programs. The Israeli government has said the military has presented the war cabinet with a plan for the evacuation of Palestinian civilians from combat zones in Gaza. The proposal comes after the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he would go ahead with an assault on the southernmost city of Rafa, despite strong international concern for the people sheltering there. The Israeli War Cabinet also approved the direct entry of aid into the northern Gaza Strip. The Palestinian government, which administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank, has submitted its resignation 
to the President Mahmoud Abbas. Announcing his resignation in a brief statement, the Prime Minister Mohammed Shetaya explained the decision. This decision comes in the wake of the political, security and economic developments related to the aggression against our people in the Gaza Strip and the unprecedented escalation in the West Bank and Jerusalem. It is related also to the fierce and unprecedented attack on our people, our Palestinian cause and our political system. Farmers have been staging protests in cities across Europe, including Brussels, Cork and Madrid. They're demanding action from policymakers to deal with cheap supermarket prices, low-cost imports that undercut local producers and EU environmental rules. In Brussels, farmers set fire to piles of tyres. Riot police fired water cannon to put out the flames. The protest in the Belgian capital coincided with a meeting of EU agriculture ministers. The Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue, who's attending the meeting, said it was important for the farmers' voices to be heard. I'd like to thank the Belgian Presidency for calling today's meeting, and it's an important meeting. Obviously, we have to consider and listen very carefully to the, the views of farmers across Europe, and particularly in relation to the need to put a, an increased emphasis on the massive work they're doing in relation to food production, and within the Common Agricultural Policy, make sure that that is a, an anchor consideration of all our policies as well. The Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has said his government will approve Sweden's application to join NATO. Mr Orban made the announcement in the Hungarian Parliament. Sweden applied to join the alliance almost two years ago. Objections by Hungary and Turkey had delayed its membership being ratified. Now the weather. RTE Radio 1 Weather with Grant. For highly efficient, sustainable home heating for your new build, choose Grant's A++ rated Aerona heat pump. Visit grant.ie. It'll be generally dry and bright today with long sunny spells. Highest temperatures will be around 9 degrees. And there's a warning that southwesterly winds will occasionally reach gale force 8 overnight on coastal waters from bloody foreland to Maddenhead. Brian. Thank you, Brian. Still to come this lunchtime, Bank of Ireland reports profits of almost €2 billion Euro for last year. Sinn Féin says the bank levy should be doubled. We'll talk to finance spokesperson Pierce Doherty. Taoiseach attends a European summit on Ukraine, but some Eastern European leaders stay away. Medical negligence costs the state more than €3 billion Euros since 2010. We hear what the consultants have to say about that. The Garda Commissioner says drink-driving gains have been lost to drug-driving. And new data on pension coverage a third of workers here will depend on the basic state payment your tv license supports essential public media in ireland if you've recently paid your tv license thank you for more see tvlicense.ie or visit any post office remember if you have a tv you must have a tv license brought to you by the government of ireland It begins with a moment, the business idea that keeps you up at night. So you start researching, developing, prototyping. You nail that big pitch. You get your first customer and dream of thousands more. An entrepreneur's journey is made up of many moments like these. And Enterprise Ireland is here for all of them. Whether you're looking to raise funding, get expert advice or expand internationally. For every startup moment, we're there. 
For more information, visit enterprise-ireland.com forward slash startup. Enterprise Ireland, with you on your startup journey. Hello again, you're listening to the news at one. 2023 was a bumper year for Bank of Ireland, which today reports that pre-tax profits almost doubled last year to just under €2 billion. Annual results from the bank show profits up 92% to €1.94 billion, mainly accounted for by rising interest rates. This means the bank's net interest margin, the difference between the cost of funds and what it charges borrowers, has widened. With Irish banks expected to report profits of around and four and a half billion euro for last year. Sinn Féin is this lunchtime calling for the bank levy to be doubled to 400 million euro. We'll talk to Sinn Féin's Pierce Hardy in just a moment. But first, Minister of Public Expenditure Pascal Donoghue told reporters this morning that changes were made to the bank levy in last year's budget. We already have a bank levy in place. The Minister for Finance made changes in the bank levy in the recent budget uh, to ensure that a broader uh, group of financial institutions in our country uh, will be paying back to the state a higher level of contribution. And of course, uh, the uh, state, because it is still a shareholder within AIB, will benefit, of course, from any future dividend payments too. Minister Pascal Donoghue will rejoin now from Letter Kenny by Sinn Féin's finance spokesperson Pierce Doherty. A very good afternoon to Pierce Doherty and welcome to the programme. Good afternoon to you, Brian. We all know where the banks were a little over a decade ago on life support. Today, Bank of Ireland reporting profits of close to 2 billion. AIB later this week expected to produce a figure somewhat north of 2 billion. Is that good news for the economy? Good news for all of us that the banks are in such rude good health? Well, it's definitely good news for the shareholders of the banks uh, because as we see from Bank of Ireland, uh, there's about 1.15 billion euro going to be paid back to shareholders either through dividends or through a share buyback program and uh, the state no longer is a shareholder in that bank. So we don't get any of those dividends. We carried the bank during the harsh times uh, and now the profits will be, will be garnered by, by other private individuals. Um, Obviously, we want profitable banks in the state. We want profitable banks because that allows for additional capital and additional lending uh, in the economy. But we also want a banking system that is fair uh, and that 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 treats its customers uh, with fairness in relation to the rates that it's charging. Uh, and look, it's no surprise what the banks, the profits that the banks were making. They're made nearly two. Bank of Ireland made nearly two billion euro profit last year. Uh, that's a result of not huge innovation, but it's as a result of the ECB interest rates that have been happening since July of 2022 um, because the Irish uh, has so many deposits with banks uh, the Irish banks were benefiting more than any other European banks in terms of the interest rate hikes they were getting 4% for every night that our deposits were with ECB and that that's driven the huge profitability and that's why we argued with government that you needed to increase the bank levy but we also argued that you actually needed to make sure that the banks pay their fair share of tax mm-hmm. um, in any given year and as we can see today uh, the the Irish tax on this 2 billion euro profits or nearly 2 billion euro profits is just 19 million and the reason it's 19 million is because they have carried forward losses, mm. uh, which happened at the time of the Celtic Tiger so what collapse that points to, of nearly uh, 200. What that points to as well is this question of, of the interest, net interest margin, the, the money they make on, 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 on lending, is that this is a cyclical business, isn't it? There are, there are good years and there are lean years. Uh, and uh, you know, this is obviously a good year, 2023, 2024 also might be, but there also could be some lean years ahead. Yeah, look, it's not just that it's a good year this year. 
these banks have been significantly profitable for the last number of years. Um, and we're out of kilter, Brian, in relation to carrying forward losses. So as I said, you know, people will think, mm-hmm. right, well, the bank has made a huge amount of profit. As I said, nearly 2 billion euro, they'll pay a lot of tax. Now they're paying about 19 million euro of Irish corporation tax um, because they've yeah. been able to carry forward losses of nearly 200 million euro. If that was in Britain, they operate in Britain, they're not allowed to carry forward uh, 100% mm-hmm. of losses. They're only allowed to carry forward 25% of losses. They also operate in the United States, where there's restrictions and carry forward losses, so we do but have, our government. We do, sorry, yeah. we do, so we do, we do then have the bank levy. It was significantly increased in in last year's uh, budget, more than doubled to two hundred million euro this year. You say the figure should be four hundred million. Is it is it a case that Sinn Fein looks at what the government's doing and uh, and doubles the number? Not at all. And you had Pascal Donoghue on earlier on in your clip there. What Pascal didn't tell the Irish people is actually he cut the bank levy. The bank levy was down at 87 million euro. We argued that it was absolutely reckless in doing that, that it should have been increased. And the government increased it to 200 million euro. It used to be, when it was introduced, it was 150 million euro. When it was introduced, the banks are making hyper profits now at a time. And the bank levy should reflect the profits of the banks. And we shouldn't have these types of, as I said, these tax deals that would allow them to write down their tax well, liability. Of course, to the levels that they are. There's, there's also, of course, a significant state shareholding remaining in AIB, uh, and um, increasing the levy also raises the the prospect of cutting off your nose to spite your face, re- reducing the attractiveness of that shareholding when the government uh, is trying to slowly reduce its holding. Well, we've heard all those arguments from from government in the past, um, and what, what we're talking about here today is Bank of Ireland, which made two billion euro profit. We have no shareholding whatsoever, and the levy is not at the appropriate level. And we've allowed them to reduce their tax liability to one percent of their uh, of their group profits, uh, and that's not fair in my view. In terms of AIB, it's a minority shareholding. I think that the shareholding should be kept because these banks are profitable, and as we can see, they, they can continue to pay dividends for the Irish state into the into the future. Um, but having an appropriate levy on, on the banks at this point in time is, makes absolute sense. And as I said, Pascal Donoghue was completely wrong to reduce the levy by uh, by, by 50% when he did. Uh, the government, through the pressure that Sinn Féin is putting them under, increased it to 200 million, but the appropriate figure would have been 400 million. Uh, and that would have been in keeping with the rise in profits of the banks over the years since the levy was introduced. Pierce Doherty of Sinn Féin, thanks for talking to us. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar will join 20 European leaders in Paris this afternoon for a special summit on Ukraine called by French President Emmanuel Macron. The summit is to reaffirm European commitment to Ukraine at a time when support at EU level appears to have splintered. Let's talk now to Suzanne Lynch, Chief Brussels Correspondent with Politico. Suzanne, just give us a sense, first of all, as to why President Macron has called this meeting. Is it to make specific decisions or, or to show a European or to try to show European resolve to back Ukraine? on this second anniversary. Yeah, I think it's it's the latter very much. Um, it was quite a last-minute decision by Emmanuel Macron to call this meeting. So he, in one way, he's done well to get the number of prime ministers in town who are all on their way to Paris for the summit. And it's really uh, to show European resolve and support for Ukraine as this two-year anniversary of the war passes this weekend. It could also be an attempt by Macron to kind of take control 
of this conversation. He was quite prominent in the early days of the war, but for example, he wasn't in attendance at the Munich Security Conference. Um, he didn't attend the G7 uh, summit at the weekend uh, on by video conference. Um, he was busy dealing with uh, agriculture and, and and protests there in France. Um, but it is, I think, an effort for him to put himself back at the centre of this debate and to try and kind of garner some EU resolve and, and positivity at a time when things are looking, frankly, pretty bleak for Ukraine in the war. 20 leaders will be there, but, but two won't, the, the Hungarian and, and Slovakian leaders, and, and they're known to be uh, individuals who um, are perhaps more sympathetic to the, to the Moscow line. Yeah, I think that's fair to say that, that that's exactly it. Um, that, you know, Hungary in particular has been putting a break on EU efforts uh, to support Ukraine, whether it was on sanctions or more recently the 50 billion uh, euro aid package that leaders finally agreed in February um, after Orban lifted his veto. So, yes, I mean, the, the problem for Europe now is that it has agreed this 50 billion euro package, but there's quite a disparity between countries on what they're giving to Ukraine in terms of ammunition and arms. And Ukraine uh, says this is what it needs. It's, it's not just, just money. Um, and we saw very strong words now from the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the Munich Security Conference about eight or nine days ago, where he urged other countries to match German spending. And really, he didn't name them, but France and Italy, the other two big countries in the European Union, are not giving the same level of help to Ukraine that Germany is, for example. So, you know, for Macron, I think the level of French commitment, what it's actually sending to Ukraine, that's also going to be in scrutiny uh, today, under scrutiny today mm. at the summit. Uh, so uh, no great expectation of specific announcements. Um, what about a, a commitment uh, to, to follow up on this meeting? Yeah, I think what we're going to see is there's one outstanding issue for Europe, this the European Peace Facility, which is a kind of a fund that's going to uh, top up member states' contributions and defence. And that has kind of stalled the last phase of that. So I think we're going to see uh, a call for that uh, to to happen more quickly. And we're also going to see a, a call for more coordination. That at the moment, EU countries are bilaterally doing their bit. But uh, I think what Macron is saying that he wants is a more coordinated joint-up approach uh, by countries, particularly those big defence spenders in the EU to work together to get those arms that Ukraine needs uh, to Ukraine, which has been saying again and again that it needs it now. There's a sense that after the election uh, in Russia, Putin's election next month, which Mm -hmm. he will obviously win, but that there could be another surge of Russian troops uh, to the front line after that point. Uh, Ukraine knows this, it knows it's outnumbered, so it says it needs the help now. Very good. Suzanne Lynch from Politico in Brussels. Thanks very much for that. The state spent more than €3 billion on medical negligence claims since 2010. That includes damages, agency and legal costs. New figures released to independent TD Carol Nolan show the annual cost of medical negligence has increased from €74 million in 2010 to more than €350 million last year. In the first six weeks of this year, the cost to the taxpayer of settlements has been €37.5 million. Let's talk to Professor Gabrielle Corran, who's Vice President of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association and a consultant in paediatric radiology. A very good afternoon to Professor Collin. Thank you for taking our, our call this afternoon. What, what do you make of these numbers? So I think, Brian, these numbers aren't a surprise to any of us that are working in the area. 
we have been observing the trend over the past 10 years. And obviously, when we see a 400% increase in costs, there clearly is an issue. It's quite a complex issue. We do know that medical legal claims will all be always be a feature in healthcare. But we have a situation where the cost of the average claim in Ireland is nearly twice. It's 191% the cost of a claim in the UK. And so there's a huge opportunity cost to these very high claims. We'd all much rather be spending that additional three billion in healthcare, on treating patients, in education, in housing, on building houses. So there's a, a huge cost to society at large because of this. And there's also a huge cost to individual patients. In terms, Brian, of solutions and looking to how can we improve this for patients and for the taxpayer, uh, there's a few things that can help. If we if we look at the research, we know that overcrowding in EDs leads to significant patient harm. There was a French study that showed if older people are in ED longer, uh, overnight waiting a bed, you get excess deaths, you have an extra person dead at 30 days. But probably, Brian, if you were to ask me what's the, the biggest thing that would impact it, we need legal reform of our tort, tort process and specifically we need pre-action protocols. Just in relation to the context of all this, are we an outlier in terms of the proportion um, of, of cases that, that end up uh, uh, in, in negligence? I, mean, I think I've heard a figure of, is it around 10% maybe uh, globally? Are, are, are we very different from that or are we pretty typical? So we are an outlier. So ourselves and the US unfortunately top that league, t- league table and, and as I was saying, Brian, you know, it is quite complex. There's, a, there's the resource aspect in terms of overcrowding, our bed occupancy being over 100%. There's consultant vacancies and delays in treatments and our long waiting lists. But really, Brian, the, the, if I could like flick a switch in the morning, what would improve things for patients? Pre-action protocols that would incentivize mediation, have fair limits on damages. That would make such a difference. And I think if we could all work together to deliver that, you know, doctors are leaving the system because of the adversarial nature of claims. And the patients who have legitimate claims are waiting too long and having a really torturous process. So this isn't working for patients and it isn't working for doctors. And it's definitely not working for the taxpayer. What we don't have in these figures today is is a breakdown as between the the, the settlements and then the cost of achieving those settlements, the the legal and other costs associated uh, uh, with that. What information is there in relation to what it costs to settle cases? So the average legal cost for a claim in Ireland is 34,646 versus the average in the UK, which is £11,900. So we are an outlier in terms of the size of the awards. And it really does come back, Brian, to the need to reform the legal system so that people who have care needs as a result of adverse outcomes are looked after. But we don't have these huge outlying payments that have such an impact on what the taxpayer can do with that money. We'd all much rather see it being spent on delivering care in a timely fashion, but is that also, high quality, so that people are well. Is that also perhaps a reflection on the way cases are handled? Because lawyers who deal with these cases will very often tell you it's only on the steps of the court that, uh, that the hospital or the HSE comes forward with a settlement. Well, I, I think to be fair to the HSC, when we're in a setting where the bed occupancy is so high and when we're in a setting where we have unfilled posts, unfortunately, all of those things add together that it makes it very difficult to optimise care for every patient in every setting. And where there's delays and overcrowding and delays getting to the ward and delays getting beds and delays getting treatment intervention, when you have adverse outcomes that are related to delays, that will impact legal settlements. So a well-resourced system, highly qualified 
qualified professionals, appropriate beds and a medical legal system that has these pre-action protocols. Like when they did this in Australia, Brian, their claims fell by 50% and the average cost by 20%. What could we do with that money for treating patients or in housing or in education, anywhere else that could be looking after our people? Professor Gabrielle Colloran from the Hospital Consultants Association. Thanks very much for that. Guardi investigating the death of a man in County Kerry have said the results of a post-mortem examination will determine the course of their inquiries. The body of the man, aged in his 80s, was found at a house on the Tralee Road in Castle, Maine, yesterday morning. Morning, our regional reporter Jenny O'Sullivan is in Castle, Maine this lunchtime. What can you tell us, Jenny? Um, good afternoon, Brian. Well, the deceased man has been named locally as 84-year-old Paddy O'Mani. Now, Paddy would have been obviously very well known within his local community here and up to his retirement would have um, been a dealer in sporting firearms and accessories as well as kind of classic pistols and rifles. But even since his retirement, continued to be very active within that community. Now, yesterday, uh, the emergency services were summoned to to his home um, at Ballyremeen, which is about three kilometres outside Castlemaine on the road to Tralee. And they discovered his body there and uh, Mr. O'Mahony was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, his body was removed to University Hospital Kerry, where a post-mortem examination is scheduled to take place this afternoon. Gardaí have refused to comment on uh, the circumstances surrounding his death and have emphasise that um, the, they'll be directed or their investigation will be directed by the findings of that post-mortem examination. Now the the house and grounds which is home to the, the Kingdom Rifle and Pistol Club uh, remain cordoned off and um, members of the Guard, the forensic team have been carrying out um, a search there and investigations since yesterday but I think for the local community here as you can imagine they're absolutely reeling from the news of the death of of Mr. O'Mahony um, and the suddenness of it and one of the councillors here who is involved in the area, Michael Shea uh, from Fianna Fáil, said that um, they are absolutely devastated at the news. He was very, very active in his local community here and he said that the community wouldn't be found wanting in the difficult weeks and um, months ahead for his family. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Uh, Jenny O'Sullivan in Castle, Maine. The Garda Commissioner has said that gains made in the decline of drink driving have been almost lost and replaced by drivers under the influence of drugs. Drew Harris was speaking in Tullamore at a schools-led road safety initiative where children are highlighting the dangers of using mobile phones when driving. Our Midlands correspondent Gail Conway was there. She's on the line now. Gail, it was a bad, it's been a bad year so far on the roads. What had Drew Harris to say about all of that this morning? Yes, Brian. Uh, the Guard Commissioner said driver behaviour was an important element in all of this. Now, he highlighted speeding as a problem, but he also said the increase in people driving under the influence of drug drug driving is a big issue. Regrettably, we're seeing things like drink driving, which was on the, which was falling back and was on long-term decline. That Those gains now have been almost lost by, by that being replaced by individuals driving under the influence of drugs. So driver behaviour is a very important element element in this. Uh, speed uh, is another contributory factor as well. We're seeing s- s- collisions of, of all types, but certainly fatal collisions and serious injury collisions where speed has been a very much a contributory factor. And last year there was over 150,000 detections for speeding. And the Commissioner Gale also saying that there are other driver behaviours that are of concern to Gardaí. 
Yeah, he said people using mobile phones while driving is a problem with thousands of detections for this last year. He said it's a problem across all age groups and he said people being on social media while driving is a particular issue. Last year we had over 19,000 detections for the use of mobile phones. So it is, it is an offence that can be detected, but mobile phones are everywhere and nearly everyone has a mobile phone. So it's not particularly limited to uh, any particular age group. But what we would say is if you're using your mobile phone, then you are distracted and events in front of you on your road, on the road as you're driving along can change in an instance. And that can be just the difference between a collision and avoiding a collision. So concentrate on the road ahead, put your phone to one side and, and don't look, certainly don't look at social media. I think that's a particular problem. People having social media open on their, on their laps and glancing down at it as they scroll through. And, that, and that's causing a real issue. So what, Gail, is this campaign about today? So this is a schools-led road safety initiative um, where children are highlighting the dangers of using mobile phones while driving. So their campaign includes a radio advert recorded by the school children and it's called Phone Down Safe Driving. So a nice simple message. And there are also new pilot road signs in association with Offaly County Council and Angarda Siakana. There's an eight-week radio campaign on Regional Radio Midlands 103 and there's also a social media campaign backed by Pop and Jason Abbey and Offaly Herder Adam Screen. Finally, the Commissioner, Gail, was asked about the Garda Representative Association and its decision not to invite him to its annual conference later this year. That's right, Brian. I asked him why he wasn't invited and this was his response. I'm somewhat baffled. I've heard nothing beyond what's uh, been issued as a public statement. I would point to the ongoing negotiations in respect of uh, rosters, which are near conclusion. I'd point to the very active support I give to the associations, both in the pay talks and in the WRC in terms of uh, uh, alliances, but also point to the advances that we've made in terms of welfare services within the organisation, the 500 plus members who were who sought and uh, attained promotion last year and the over 3,000 now who've put themselves through a course on human rights and policing on their own time. So there is an organisation where there is improvement in terms of uh, the equipment, the uniform, the uh, the computers and IT that are available. So all of these things are very positive. So against that, I do find it baffling that the GRA uh, haven't invited me, but they've given no further explanation than their, than their public commentary. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris ending that report from Gail Conway. Back with more after this short break. This is the voice of Alina Garantia. Hailed as one of the most sought-after singers on earth. Hear her live with the National Symphony Orchestra at the National Concert Hall on International Women's Day, singing arias by some of opera's greatest heroines, including Joan of Arc, Delilah, Carmen, and more. One performance only, Friday, March 8th. CNCH.ie. RTE Radio 1. Kings of Leon are back. Live in Dublin. Can we please have fun? World Tour. Marley Park, Saturday, July 6th. Subject to license. With special guests, The War on Drugs. Tickets available this Friday at 9am from Ticketmaster.ie. Kings of Leon. 
Tickets available this Friday. Music updates on RTE Radio 1. Hello again, you're listening to the news at one. New figures from the Central Statistics Office show that 68% of workers aged between 20 and 69 have some form of pension cover outside the state pension. The state's new auto-enrolment pension scheme is expected to be in place by the end of this year. Let's talk to Paul Kenny now, who's member of the Retirement Planning Council and former pensions ombudsman. Paul Kenny, you're very welcome to the programme and thanks for taking our call this, this lunchtime. So Good I, afternoon, I suppose we can look at these CSO figures and you can say the glass is half full or ha- half empty, there's still a significant number of people who don't have any pension cover other than the state pension. That's right. And, uh, of course, it's something we've been aware of for quite a long time. Every successive survey comes out with numbers that are not unlike the ones that we have today. And it, it is worrying. Uh, one particular thing that worries me um, is the fact that of the 32 odd percent who don't have uh, pension coverage, 19 percent, uh, sorry, 15 59%, which is 19% of the total population, mm-hmm. will be reliant on the state pension alone, or mainly mm-hmm. uh, as a source of retirement income. So, so that is a worrying statistic. I mean, obviously, people in the public service will have public service, uh, or m- many of them anyway, will have public service pension cover. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you take the figures purely in terms of the private sector, pension provision is, is lower again than, than a third, isn't it? Very much lower, yes, I would think. Uh, it's probably down in the 30s somewhere um, in, in terms of the private sector. And we notice from the uh, stats that have been produced uh, today that uh, 32% of those in uh, the accommodation and food services area um, have have no cover. Mm. Uh, so they are sorry, have cover. So that that that's a very low statistic. Um, they haven't uh, singled out agricultural employment, but I know from previous surveys, agriculture was one of the areas that were very poorly served in terms of pension coverage as well. And in terms of people who have that private pension, the kind of pension that they're likely to have is also shifting, isn't it? Between what's called defined contribution, uh, which guarantees you a, a particular um, sum in retirement, uh, or, or which doesn't guarantee that, and defined benefit which does. Yes, that's right. Uh, defined benefit used to be the norm uh, right throughout the private sector and the public service. Nowadays, uh, the majority of defined benefit schemes are in the public sector. There are still some private se- sector employers offering defined benefits, but it's, it's uh, the number is dwindling all the time. And the number of uh, schemes that have changed from defined benefit to defined contribution has increased uh, substantially over the years. We also find that there are there are quite a few workers in the private sector who who actually haven't been offered the option of a pension by their employers. That is very worrying indeed. Uh, I mean, I, I looked at the stats and uh, of the people who weren't in pension schemes, they said, uh, well, 43% of them said they couldn't afford to join a pension scheme, but another 43% said they hadn't got around to doing it. And that uh, worries me because since the Pensions Amendment Act in 2002, which is neither today nor yesterday, employers have had the uh, obligation to offer uh, the facility to contribute to a personal retirement savings account to anybody who's not going to be eligible to join a pension scheme within six months of joining service. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, this this is all supposed to be addressed by the government's plans for, for auto-enrolment, uh, whereby people will, unless they opt out, be automatically enrolled in a pension scheme. Um, is that happening quickly enough, do you think, and is it going to make a difference? 
Well, first of all, I think we, we missed the boat a long time ago. <laughs> they did this in Australia more than 20 years ago. Um, but uh, now that we're getting around to it, I think it's a very good idea. And, and an awful lot of people will benefit from it. There's no doubt about it. I was talking to someone recently who said he was only dimly aware of the notion of auto-enrollment, but he thought it was a great idea because he doesn't have a pension scheme in the employment that he's in at the moment. And he was looking forward mm-hmm. to the idea that he would be, in, in effect, compelled to save. Not only that he would would be compelled to say, but employer would be uh, obliged to contribute and the government was going to make a contribution as well. Mm. Now, the scheme is be, be expected to take its uh, take its first uh, people on board, if you like, by the end of the, of the year. Um, for those who do come into the scheme, what, what's, what are they, what's going to happen? How are they going to, uh, how are they going to be dealt with? What's, what's going to be their experience? Okay, well, what's going to happen is that they're going to be uh, automatically enrolled in a pension arrangement. Their employer will be uh, obliged to contribute. And uh, then uh, after seven, eight months, they will get the option to opt out. Now, what the government is relying on is inertia. They're mm-hmm. hoping that most people won't bother to opt out. And uh, quite a number of people in the survey actually have said the ones who are aware of auto-enrollment, uh, quite a high percentage of them have said that they w- will likely stay in the scheme once they're in it, mm. which is really good. Presumably, that the extent to which people stick with it will depend on the extent to which they understand exactly what's happening, and I suppose maybe the tax and other benefits uh, of putting money aside for for your pension. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be the same as the traditional pension scheme where you uh, you pay your contribution gross and you get some tax relief on it. What's going to happen here is like the old SSIA arrangement, whereby the government will actually put. Uh, 1% in for every 3% the employee puts in. So it's effectively like it's equivalent um, to tax relief at about 25%, which is higher than the rate that lower paid people would get now in terms of tax relief. They get 20% if on direct contributions, mm-hmm. but it's lower than the highest paid people would get who'd be paying 40% tax on the margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, for for a lot of those people, you know, it's certainly going to be beneficial. And once they see the money coming in from the government, I think a lot of them will tend to say, yeah, this is not a bad idea. Okay, we'll keep an eye on this follow-up and perhaps talk to you a bit later in the year when it does begin to take effect. But for the moment, Paul, Paul Kenny, Pensions Advisor, thank you very much for that. There are now enough solar power capacity on a sunny day in Ireland to run approximately 400,000 homes or 18% of the total demand for electricity here. ESB Networks says one gigawatt of solar power is available to the grid, including roughly one third from domestic rooftops. Under the Climate Action Plan, Ireland has set a target of 80% of electricity demand from renewable sources by 2030, including eight gigawatts of solar generated power. Conal Bulger is from the Irish Solar Energy Association. He says that connecting one gigawatt less than two years after Ireland's first solar farm went live demonstrates the potential of solar. He joins me now. Very good afternoon to you, Conal, and thank you for taking our call this afternoon. It's a good distance, though, from one gigawatt uh, to, to eight in just a few short years. It certainly is. Thanks very much, Brian. Um, delighted to be on. Well, the thing that's really um, impressive here um, is how solar is making such a substantive contribution in a very short period of time. In two years, we've cl- delivered um, enough projects uh, to power those 400,000 homes. And the government recognised that potential in the, the 8 gigawatt target by 2030. Now, it is, uh, it is, we have a hill to climb 
But what really what we have to do is redouble our efforts here. We've we have um, we basically have to do every year between here and the end of the decade. What uh, every year we have to deliver gigawatts. So essentially, what we've done in the last two, we have to do each year. Mm. Now the good news is we have the uh, quite a big potential um, pipeline of projects at the solar farms. Um, there's enough in planning and currently built um, to total 10 gigawatts. There is, you see, uh, at the residential level, UCC research has found last year there are 1 million homes suitable for hosting solar panels. And in the kind of community business industrial space, there's really an emerging high potential uh, there. We've seen uh, ESB networks between what's on the system and working through about 2,700 individual installations so we have the projects we have the rooftops it's really about that laser focus on delivery now and in terms of the the land that's available for solar power um, uh, sources at scale is that available is it there well yes is the short answer to meet the 2030 target would require something of the order of one-fifth of one percent of agricultural land or about half what's currently under golf courses. Um, so w- land displacement isn't really the concern um, in, for solar. Um, it's not really going to have a major effect on our ability to produce food. I sp- what, what's really needed is a kind of a bit of a focus on what's often overlooked than the electricity network, which was designed initially to uh, move electricity mm-hmm. around that was generated by burning dead dinosaurs. And we're moving into a world where we're going to have an electricity system that's largely built around wind, solar and storage. And so really we need to kind of build out that network and we as a society need to get behind the build out of that network. Mm-hmm. And that, that also involves our political uh, system as well, yeah. Right, but, but but we'll we'll still need gas. We'll still need some carbon sources, won't we, for the days when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine? Well, we're moving to a point where we are going to be able to manage more and more of uh, the system uh, from uh, those kind of renewable sources. Mm-hmm. What we're, we're we're the beneficiaries here that when the wind doesn't blow, it tends to be sunny, and when the sun shines, it tends to be windy. And if you uh, layer those over each other with a lot of storage, you start getting closer and closer to the 100% network that we're all aiming for. Okay, uh, Conal Bulger from the Irish Solar Energy Association. Thanks for that. Sport on RTE Radio 1. Hello, good afternoon to Andrew Connor. A very good afternoon to you, Brian. Good news for Everton fans of a sort. The club have had their penalty for breaching English Premier League financial rules reduced to six points following an appeal. The Toffees were hit with a ten-point deduction last November after an independent commission found they'd exceeded permitted losses under the league's profitability and sustainability rules by £19.5 million sterling over an assessment period ending with the 2021-22 season. An independent appeal board has now cut that by four points, which moves the club up to 25 points in the table and up to 15th place. The club faced, though, a second complaint for breaching rules over the assessment period running to the end of last season. That complaint was laid down on the 15th of January and under standard directions for those cases agreed by the top flight clubs last summer. The commission hearing in that case must conclude no later than 12 weeks after that complaint was made, which would be April the 8th. Tonight in the English Premier League, West Ham United and detain Brentford at 8 o'clock and the FA Cup fifth round gets underway with Coventry hosting Maidstone United at 7.45.
Here at home, Republic of Ireland Captain Katie McCabe has said that she feels standards are improving with each round of international fixtures for the Irish women's team out of the visit of Wales to Tallis Stadium tomorrow. Ireland secured a nil-all draw against a very strong Italian team in Florence last Friday. Next to rugby, Gary Ringrose is hoping to be fully fit for Ireland's Guinness Six Nations clash with England on Saturday week. The 29-year-old Leinster centre last played in the province's Champions Cup win over Leicester on the 20th.